In the heart of Oklahoma City, there's an American elm tree, and it's been standing there for more than 100 years. And anybody who visits the city always wants to stand by this tree and have their picture taken. Why? What's the attraction? I mean, there are so many trees there in Oklahoma City that are much bigger and much more impressive and much more picture, picturesque. So what is it that draws people to this particular tree? Because in 1995, this is the tree that was standing just a few yards away from where Timothy McVeigh parked his truck and set off the bomb that killed 168 people and wounded 850 others. I mean, while everything around it was being blown to bits, yet this tree continued to stand. Now, the tree was heavily damaged, covered in rubble, all kinds of glass and debris embedded in its trunk. And most of the tree was badly scarred by the fire that came from the cars that were parked nearby. In fact, that tree was so badly damaged that most people never expected the tree to survive. For the longest time, they were thinking about cutting it down. But a year later, at a memorial service right near that tree, people noticed that the tree was starting to bloom again. So they left it standing. And to this day, that American elm tree continues to thrive and flourish. And people refer to that tree as the survivor tree. Now why? Why did it survive? Why was it able to remain standing in the midst of that massive explosion? Well, the answer is found beneath the surface. You dig down deep into the soil where nobody else can see, and that tree was constantly drawing upon the moisture and the nutrients that only God could provide. In other words, the lesson of the survivor tree is this. To survive the, to survive the evil in this world, to rise above the Timothy McVeighs and all the others who would try to ruin us and destroy us, we have to reach out beyond ourselves. We've got to tap into the resources that only God can supply. Now, that same lesson is taught again and again and again throughout the pages of the Bible. Think about Daniel. He knew this. You know, when I read the book of Daniel, I feel like I'm watching a real-life superhero. I mean, Daniel is this compelling figure, the courage that he displays in the midst of unbelievable danger. And he always remains so calm, so composed, when everything around him is falling apart. And then the wisdom that he exhibits when he's confronted with mysteries and challenges that are inexplicable to everybody else. I mean, this guy Daniel just seems to be larger than life. And if I'm not careful, as I'm reading that book, I'll find myself feeling a sense of awe for Daniel instead of feeling a sense of awe for the God who took care of Daniel. You see, that's the real reason that book was put in the Bible. The book of Daniel is really not about Daniel. It's about the God who provided for Daniel. He's the hero of the story. And that really comes out when you get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, you have the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Do you remember? I mean, imagine the drama that night as Daniel is stuck here in a lion's den, surrounded by all these wild animals. You know, if I'd been writing the book and I was talking about that particular scene, I think I would have taken 150 verses to bring out all the detail, to draw out all the suspense. What was it really like for a man to be locked up in a lion's den for 12 hours? I mean, the drama at that moment must have been unimaginable. And yet the Bible doesn't say anything about it. You read Daniel chapter 6 and there's not one description of any kind about what happened that night in the lion's den other than this. And God shut the mouths of the lions. That's the only thing we're told because that's the only thing we need to know. I mean, think about it. What can a man do when he's stuck in a lion's den? There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You're completely unarmed. You're surrounded by all these wild beasts. A human being can't do anything in a situation like that. But here's what God can do. He can shut the mouths of the hungry lions. 
You see, it was a God thing, not a Daniel thing, that made the difference that night. So the only thing the Bible tells us about that night in the lion's den, the only thing that the Bible tells us about those 12 dramatic hours when Daniel was stuck in that deep, dark pit is this. God saved Daniel. Or think about the story of Noah. When Moses first wrote the book of Genesis, everybody knew, in all the surrounding nations, everybody knew that there had once been a great flood. Because in all those different countries, they had stories, stories to explain. How did people survive that great catastrophe? For example, the Babylonians told the story about a fellow by the name of Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim. That name means super genius because they considered him to be the brightest man who ever lived. Nobody smarter than him. And to show how smart he was, they used this story. They said when he knew that a great storm was coming their way, he designed a boat to guide people through that flood. And you read the description of this boat that he was going to build. It looked like a giant cube. It was 180 feet long, it was 180 feet wide, and it was 180 feet high. And this boat was designed to carry over 200,000 tons of cargo, animals, plants, and people. A very impressive ship, or at least it looked that way. But then you stop to think about this and you think, whoa, wait a minute, something's not right here. This has to be a piece of fiction. Because if you built a boat like that and put it on the water, it's not going to float, it's going to sink. It would drop to the bottom of the sea like a giant rock. For all his brain power, this Utnapishnam, he designed the wrong kind of boat to get us through a flood. That can't be the way people survive that catastrophe. So Moses comes along and he says, let me tell you what really happened during the great flood. And in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, he tells us about Noah. Now, here's the interesting thing. When the Bible talks about Noah, it never talks about how smart he was or how talented he was. In fact, the only description we have is this, and Noah walked with God. Because there's the key. There's the reason why Noah and his family survived the flood. You see, Noah had no clue that a flood was coming his way until God told him. And then Noah had no idea how to survive that flood until God presented him with the plans, the blueprints for the ark. And then when Noah and his family got on board that giant boat, there was no rudder and there was no compass because Noah was not the pilot for the ship. God was. In other words, the people who survived the flood survived not because of their courage, not because of their intelligence. The reason why they survived is because God saved them. Now, do you begin to notice a pattern? All the way through the Bible, we have these stories, these amazing stories, stories of survival. And yet, in every single case, the reason why the people survived was because of what God did for them. So it is in the story that we want to talk about today, the story of David and Goliath. This is one of the best known and most loved stories in all the Bible. And yet, many times, the way we tell that story does not match with what we actually read in Scripture. You know, we hear about David and Goliath, and what do we think about? Here's this little boy, here's this huge giant. So you've got David, the kid, the great underdog, facing these overwhelming odds. And somehow, someway, he pulls off the most improbable of victories, and he does it in the most unconventional way, with a slingshot. Well, that's not quite the way it went. Three things I want you to notice. Number one, at this point in his life, David is not a kid anymore. By the time you get to 1 Samuel 17, David is somewhere around the age of 19 or 20. So he's not a boy anymore. He's a young man. Now, he's still not old enough to join the army. And that's one of the reasons why King Saul and everybody else in Israel is kind of hesitant about David going out to face Goliath. He's a shepherd. Goliath's a soldier. Yeah, David's killed his lions and bears and protecting the sheep, but he's never had to face a professional assassin like Goliath. 
So here's this young man, David, though he may be fearless when he's out there in the woods dealing with all the wild beasts, he's never been on the battlefield before. And that's a different kind of fight. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, in this scene, David is the amateur. Goliath is the professional. And that's why everybody else has so many misgivings about this situation. Here's the second thing. At this point in his life, David is not small. He's not a little guy. You know, verses 38 and 39, we hear about the conversation that David is having with King Saul. King Saul is one of the biggest men in all the Bible. The Bible describes him as being head and shoulders over everybody else. And in ancient Israel, scholars will tell you that the average Israelite man stood about five feet, six inches tall, which means King Saul was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 6'6", six, 6'9", six, six, somewhere in that territory. But in verse 38, Saul makes the offer to take his armor and put it on David. In fact, he does more than that. He only, not only makes the offer, he puts it on him. He helps to dress him up in the armor. And nowhere in that scene does Saul say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this is way too big for you. This is not going to work. He doesn't say that. He puts the armor on David, and he gives David an opportunity to walk around in it for a while. And then in verse 39, David refuses to wear the armor. And the reason why he refuses to wear the armor is not because it didn't fit. David's not a little guy. He's a big guy. No, the reason why David refuses to wear the armor, he says, I'm not used to this. Meaning, hey, Saul, I appreciate the offer, but I'm not a soldier. I'm a shepherd. And if I'm going to have any chance in this fight with a giant, I need to use what I'm good with. Well, what is David good with? The sling. That brings me to the third thing. This sling that David is carrying into the battle that day, this is not a slingshot, you know, something that you pull. This is not a child's toy. No, what he's holding is an incredibly devastating weapon. I mean, we have paintings from medieval times showing the slingers. That's what they would call these men who are experts with a sling, hitting birds in mid-flight. Or you can read about in the old Irish army, they had a group of men known as the slingers, men who could hit a tiny coin from 200 yards away. And the only reason I mention that is because you find the same thing in the Bible. In the Old Testament book of Judges, we read about these 700 young men from the tribe of Benjamin, all of them left-handed. And the tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that King Saul came from. And the Bible tells us how they were all experts with this sling. And the Bible says they could, you could take a hair, a single hair, and set it at an incredible distance, and they would never miss. They'd hit it every single time. That's the kind of skill that David possessed. And then you think about what did David put in the sling? See, here in 1 Samuel 17, when David comes down into the valley to take on Goliath, he is standing in the valley of Elah. And the stones in this valley are not your normal rocks. They are barium sulfate. They are rocks that have twice the density of normal stones. And the stones that David picks up, and remember, he picks up five of them. They're not these tiny pebbles. They're about the size of a tennis ball. So you take that kind of a rock and you put it in a sling being used by somebody with the skill of this young man, David, and what kind of damage can you do? Well, a fellow by the name of Aiton Hirsch, who for years was a ballistics expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, he studied the text, and he's done the calculations. And he says the stopping power of a rock like this and a sling like this being used by somebody like David is roughly equivalent to the stopping power of a 45 caliber handgun. You see, David is not this little boy using a toy slingshot. Now, after having said all that, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. David's talented, yes. David's skilled, yes. When David comes down into this valley to face the giant, he's bringing a lot to the table. But here's the interesting thing. 
notice with all that David has going for him, notice what's emphasized in the Bible. For example, when David is having that conversation with King Saul and trying to convince him, hey, I'm willing to go out and take on that giant. And he tells Saul about his experiences with the sheep and how he dealt with the lion and how he dealt with the bear. But notice how David describes that experience. Verse 37. Saul, it was Yahweh, the Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion. And it was Yahweh that rescued me from the paw of the bear. And it was God, and it is God who's going to rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. See, he doesn't mention anything at all about his weapons. He's not bragging about his skills. David says in every one of those extraordinary moments when he's facing these extraordinary challenges, it was the power of God who delivered him. And then 10 verses later, he does the same thing. When he's standing in the valley and he's talking to Goliath, listen to what David says. Verse 47, all those gathered here, Goliath, all those who are watching this fight right now, they're going to know it was not by the sword, it was not by the spirit, or he could have said, and it's not by the sling that the Lord saves. No, for the battle's the Lord's, not mine. And it is he, Goliath, it is he, not me, it is he who will give you into our hands. See, this is a God moment, not a David moment. So, for Samuel chapter 17, this is not the story of this amazing young man, though David is an amazing young man who has incredible skills with a sling. Because remember, those slingers from the book of Judges, many of them are standing on the battlefield this day. They're a part of King Saul's army. And for 40 days, twice a day, the mighty Goliath would come down in the valley and taunt Saul and challenge the army of Israel. And not once did any of those professional slingers respond to that challenge because all those young men from Benjamin, they knew, hey, as good as I am with the sling, I'm no match for this guy. It's going to take something more than this to win this fight. Now, here's the other interesting thing, I think, about this story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, as big as Goliath is, and he's enormous. He's enormous in size. And yet not once in all 58 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17 does the Bible ever refer to Goliath as a giant. Why? Because the only giant on the battlefield this day is God. You see, for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath's been coming down and mocking Saul and his army, making fun of the Israelites. But he's been doing more than that. For 40 days, he's been mocking the God of Israel. He's been speaking blasphemies against the Lord. And do you remember what the Bible says in the book of Leviticus, what the penalty is for blasphemy? Stoning. Listen, it's no accident that Goliath was brought down by a rock because God is at work here. And the, and the Bible says God will not be mocked. Years ago, Zig Ziglar was tucking his little boy into bed. His son's name is Tommy. And every night they had this ritual. Just before Tommy would go to sleep, Zig would sit on the edge of the bed and tell his son, a story from the Bible. And on this particular night, he was telling the story of David and Goliath. And when he got through the story, he said, Tommy, isn't that David something? I mean, you think about the challenge that he was facing. Here's this guy, stands over nine feet tall, and from head to toe, he's covered with armor. How can you win in a challenge like that? Boy, Tommy, wasn't David brave? And the little boy said, yeah, Dad, I, I guess so, but I think Goliath was the one who was really brave. Well, Zig was kind of taken back by that, and he said, Goliath? How do you figure? Why would you say Goliath was brave? And little Tommy said, because dad, you got to understand, Goliath was out there all by himself, but David, he had God with him. Now that little boy understood what 1 Samuel 17 is really all about. This is a God story, not a David story. It's God who makes the difference here. 
So the question for, this, for us is this, where is our God story? Well, to me, that's one of the exciting things about 1 Samuel chapter 17, because what we have here is a picture, a preview of the battle that Jesus would fight for us on the cross. You see, David was born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And long before David ever got to the battlefield to take on Goliath, the Bible makes it clear, 1 Samuel chapter 16, that David had already been anointed by God. He was the anointed one, the one appointed by God to rule over his people, to be the king over Israel. Well, Jesus is our anointed one, the king, our Messiah, who comes to this world to rescue us from our sin. So, 1 Samuel chapter 17, where are we in this story? We are the Israelites. We're the ones standing up on the hill. We're the ones hiding in fear. We're the ones trembling and shaking because we know we're no match for this giant. We're not qualified to respond to this challenge. And God understands that. That's why God brings in somebody special to fight the battle for us. In the Old Testament, it was David fighting the battle for the Israelites. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus fighting the battle for us, fighting a battle that we knew we couldn't win. And just like David in the Old Testament, Jesus wins this battle in an unconventional way. Just like that shepherd taking on a soldier. So how did Jesus defeat Satan? How did he set us free from our sin? He used a cross. Nobody expected that. I will always remember how Rob explained this. Years ago, he was preaching for us here at New Hope on a Good, a good Friday service. And that night, he was talking about Jesus and, and explaining the significance of what he did for us on the cross. And he described it this way. He said, the night before the cross, there's this mob, this angry mob that comes storming into the Garden of Eden. They come into the garden to arrest Jesus. And that's when Peter arises to his defense. Peter pulls out a sword and he strikes a man, a man by the name of Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. Well, in doing that, Peter puts himself in all kinds of trouble, legal trouble. You see, this man Malchus, he is the servant of the high priest. So Malchus has friends in high places. He can now take Peter to court. And worst case scenario, Peter can be charged with attempted murder. Or best case scenario, Peter can be charged with assault and battery with a deadly weapon. But either way, Peter's facing hard time. He's going to have to spend a lot of time in prison. Right now, his future looks grim. But that's when Jesus steps in and he does something that nobody expected because nobody thought it was possible. Jesus picks up that amputated ear and reattaches it to the man's head like the ear had never been cut off in the first place. Now the evidence is gone. Now there's no case. Now Malchus cannot take Peter to court. Now Malchus cannot stand in front of the judge and say, hey, judge, you need to punish Peter. Why? Because he hurt me. Well, how did he hurt you? He cut off my ear. Well, which ear did he cut off? He cut off my right ear. And the judge looks at Malchus and he says, hey, it looks fine to me. No evidence, no case, and Peter is free. And it's all because of Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross? He destroyed all the evidence. Now the devil can no longer make any kind of accusation against us because all our sin has been forgiven. You see, Jesus did what no one thought was possible. He found a way to make us right with God. And that's why we follow him. We follow Jesus because he can do things for us that no one else can. That's our God's story. Let's pray. God... Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life and the joy and the hope and the salvation that we enjoy because of him. God, I pray, keep our faith and keep our confidence just deeply rooted 
and firmly established in all that he has given to us, in all that he has done for us. God, keep our hearts focused upon Jesus. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.